Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening, and welcome to this week's episode of The Quarterdeck. This week on The Quarterdeck, we look at the story of the 1st Marine Division in Iraq in 2003, No Greater Friend, No Worst Enemy, and we're talking about the Jersey Drill Number 2 in the amphitheater of the desert. What the division is planning now with this new way of planning and using their jerseys to motivate the units to understand exactly what's going to go on once they get into the battlefield. In our hero highlight this week, we're taking a look at the story and the heroism of Private First Class Douglas Thomas Jacobson. Drop and give me 25. I'm the gunny. It's time for the it's, it's time for the gunny. It's time. It's time. The quarter deck. Lights, lights, lights. Get online right now. You got 10, 9, 8, 7, 6, 5, 4, 3, 2, 1, 0. Hello, my bunch of knuckle-dragging, beer-drinking, hard-charging devil dogs. You're listening to The Quarter Deck. I am your host, Miguel, the Gunny Signs. Get off the bus! I do solemnly swear. I do solemnly swear. That I will support you. The Constitution of the United States. Against all enemies, foreign and domestic. Hello, everyone, and let me tell you guys, it is great to be back on the air here on the quarter deck with you guys. I got to say, I have actually missed recording the podcast, and let me tell you guys what the heck is going on. Remember, I told you guys a couple of episodes ago when we just returned from Hawaii, I let you guys know that, hey... I was getting ready to go ahead and have surgery. Well, that is exactly what the heck happened. And I have not been able to jump on here and get on to the podcast and let you guys know what exactly has been going on. But let me bring you guys up to speed of what actually has been going on and what happened and what the hell the doctor did to me to ensure that I was going to be better, more functional and ready to go as we progress on with the rest of the life of the gunny. So here we go. So, once I got back from Hawaii, you know, I already had the scheduled surgery planned that the doctor was going to go in there and to conduct a surgery, what you call a lumbaroscopy with fusion. And, you know, when he first told me that, I was like, what the hell is that? That is some freaking tongue twister that I don't even understand exactly what the hell that it is. But let me break it down. I'm going to break it down Barney style straight for you guys. So you have an understanding exactly of what the hell I'm talking about. So what this whole process is, is basically the doctor goes in there with an endoscopy little camera, one of those little tubes that goes inside of your back and has the little area where they can put in a small little drill, a camera, and everything so they can see exactly what they're doing inside there. And what he told me was that he's going to go in there into my L2, 3, 4, and 5 vertebrae to help to relieve the pressure from the nerves that are causing all the pain going down my legs from my back and making my legs go numb. So, and he guaranteed, he said, as soon as I do this, I promise you that all that pressure and all that numbness will go away. So that's why I agreed to actually do this surgery because those of you that actually know me, you know that this will be my second back surgery that I've had the first one was back in 2014, right before I retired from active duty from the Marine Corps. So, you know, I was a little hesitant at first to say, you know what? Yeah, let's go ahead and, and do this. 
and so was my wife. Now, the good thing about it is that my wife has a cousin that this doctor also did a back surgery on him, and he is very, very functional, no pain, nothing, and able to continue about his business every single day and do whatever he has to do. So, you know, we're very, very optimistic. So the doctor went in there in my surgery. I had it on the 21st of this month. So you guys can see how I, when I got back from Hawaii, I was getting everything ready to go in preparations for this surgery. So I went in there. Uh, the day started off, you know, good. Got up in the morning on the 21st. I actually took two showers that morning because they wanted me to go in there with no deodorant, nothing. So I was going to be freaking smelling freaking nasty, just like coming back from the freaking field or something. And that morning I got up because that Hurricane freaking Hillary just blew her load coming in through from the West Coast, coming in this way. And let me tell you guys, that damn thing blew tons of sand everywhere because it brought up so much freaking dirt. It was like a freaking gigantic damn sandstorm. The day before, it was nothing but rain the whole entire day. So that was nice. It was nice and cool and stuff like that, and it made the rain come down. And it made it feel almost like as if we were back in the East Coast with the rain coming down nice and soft. But the next day, oh my God, completely turned around. Air blowing everywhere, 30 to 60 mile an hour winds, and it was nasty. Nasty. The good thing about it was that the, our power never went out. The It never blew out any power lines or anything like that, so we were able to continue to have our air conditioning on. And those of you that know, down here in Arizona, oh my goodness, it is hot. It gets hot as hell down here, so we were lucky in that part. But that next morning on the 21st when I woke up, I got up, I went outside with the air blower, and I blew all the sand out of the front yard, the backyard, to make sure that it would be clean for my wife because I knew that for the next couple of weeks, I wasn't going to be able to do anything. I wasn't going to be able to go out there and clean or anything like that. So I wanted to make sure that it was done to the best that I could to ensure that she would have all that done and she wouldn't have to worry about that because she already would have had to worry about taking care of me, taking care of the dogs. And yes, you guys heard me say dogs. I did say dogs because now we have a small miniature toy poodle that has joined our house and her name is Yoshi. Later on, I will go ahead and make an introduction in our video podcast on YouTube so everybody gets the opportunity to actually see what that little ball of fur actually looks like. And I forgot what it was like to have a puppy in the house. And right now, with me, with my back the way that I am, I can't help my wife. She's got it. <laughs> so I'm delegating the authority and giving her the duties of actually taking care of the puppy instead of me. So once the surgery was done, you know, he, he went in there and he told me that it was going to take maybe about an hour and a half, two hours max to go in there and do what he had to do. So what he did was he went in there and he went vertebrae by vertebrae and he stuck that little endoscopy in there and they put a, that little drill inside of it. And what he did was he drilled off portions of my bone from my spine. He drilled portions of it off on both sides of the actual vertebrae to help to relieve the pressure from the back of the nerve that was causing this pain and this inflammation and tingling and numbness and everything going down my legs. So he did that on all those, on L2, 3, 4, and 5, all the way up. So yes, I got a freaking gnarly freaking scar in the back of my back now. The last time they did the surgery, I just had two small little maybe three-inch incisions on both sides of my back. The doctor went in there and when he fused 
my spine together with the hardware and the doctor left that in there. He didn't take none of that hardware out. So that's still in place, but he did all that grinding down and he went ahead and relieved the pressure from my spine. And he added some small, tiny little screws on the actual vertebrae themselves, just to give them some strength and some support to make sure that they were also working out. Because once he was done with the whole entire surgery and it took him three and a half hours. Cause the one thing that I remember is that this guy, you know, they had me in the, in the actual preparation room getting ready to go to the surgery. They told me to be there by 10 in the morning and the surgery was going to start around 12. So they had me prepped, ready to go. I was in my little freaking nightgown. Yes, I was in my freaking damn birthday suit under my damn suit, bare ass freaking naked. Damn, it was cold. And I was there ready to go. And then they carted me off, headed me out into the actual surgery room. And I was still wide awake by then. They take me into the surgery room. I go in there and I, as soon as they open the doors, they pull me in. I hear nothing but freaking Metallica blaring, rock and roll blasting. And I'm like, hell yeah, it's a party. And one of the doctors looks at me and he's like, yeah, unfortunately, I'm sorry. You're not going to be able to hear what's going on once we give you the anesthesia and you're knocked the hell out. So they explained to me exactly what they were going to do. And they told me, you know, we're going to sit here and we're going to get you ready to go, get you all cleaned up. And then the anesthesiologist is going to go ahead and give you the anesthesia and then we're going to go ahead and put you on the other table upside down with your face down. And he said, the very most very important thing is that just so you know, I'm going to go ahead and put some cushions under your eyes to make sure that there's not that much pressure on your eyes. So it'll be around your forehead and around there to alleviate all that pressure of everything from your weight and everything from laying there in that same position for very long, because that's where we come into trouble. Because if you're laying there for very long, it could lead to blindness or, you know, issues with your vision and that's something that we don't want to happen. So I'm like, okay, got it. And then they, they lay me there on the bed right next to the bed where they're going to flip me over. And he's like, all right, here, I'm going to give you some oxygen just so you can relax and get ready to go. And I'm like, okay. And then the next thing he tells me, okay, all right, it is time to go night night. And I remember I was sitting there, you know, blinking my eyes, trying to fight it and didn't want to go not get knocked out or anything like that. And then the next thing I know, I'm blinking again. And he's still like, okay, welcome back. And I'm like, what? You know, and then they told me they told me it was going to be an hour and a half to two hours. So I figured 12, two hours, maybe two o'clock, 145. I'm like, damn, it's already 145 already. And he looks at me he's like, no, it's 345. I'm like, what? I'm like, you guys take a freaking break, go on vacation, then came back and finally finished the surgery or what the hell happened? He's like, no, I just took a little bit longer than we thought it was going to do. But everything looks great. And I'm going to tell you guys, since that surgery, I have not had any pain in my legs. My legs feel almost like they're new. There's no tingling. There's no numbness. And so, you know, we're very, very grateful for the op the job that the doctor did. And he's a veteran. He's a veteran. He was in the Army, an Army surgeon. And, man, so many people around here in the local area know him because of the work that he does and how much he actually cares for his patients. He came in and saw me after the surgery. And that's when he was asking me how I felt and stuff. And I told him, like, hey, you know, it freaking hurts. Because I'm going to tell you guys, this surgery was about, I would say, freaking 10 times more painful than the spinal fusion that they did when back in 2014. This one actually sucked. The pain was freaking unbearable. That first night, I was miserable as hell. I was like, oh, my God, what the hell did I do? What did I do to myself? Because this thing is freaking causing me so much pain. They gave me morphine, they gave me freaking Percocet, all those different pain medicine, medication to help with the pain, 
and none of it was absolutely helping with the amount of pain that I was having. It almost felt like there was somebody there yanking my body apart and squishing it back together again because the way that that pain felt from my spine, it was just bad. Then the next day, I stayed overnight as well again because originally I was only they, he was only planning on keeping me there for one night. But just because I was having so much pain the day before, he decided to go ahead and keep me overnight one more night, you know, and I'm glad that they did because it allowed me to recover a little better there at the hospital to be able to have the nurses there to uh, keep an eye on me and make sure that I was doing okay. Because one thing they told me was that I had my blood pressure was freaking high and that's that's kind of weird because I've never, ever, ever had high blood pressure before. And they said that could be kind of normal because a lot of people have the surgery and the body's still kind of trying to adjust on what's going on with the pain that it's dealing with and everything that was done to the body. So I am hopeful. I'm looking at the bright future. And right now I'm just taking it easy. I am finally able to get out of bed on my own. I am no longer using a walker to walk around. I can walk longer distances now than I did when I had uh, the surgery. So I can get up, walk around the house a couple of times and I'm good. And yesterday I had my follow-up with the doctor. He told me to, to get rid of the walker unless I actually, actually needed it for balance and make sure that I'm okay. No more walker. He got rid of the back brace. He told me to walk, to get off my lazy ass and walk around to make my back stronger. So guess what? That's what I'm going to do. I'm going to make sure that I sit for a while, walk for a while, sit for a while. And if I get tired and I feel really exhausted and just got a little bit of pain, I'm going to go lay down. But the one good positive thing of this, I have not taken any pain medication in the last two days. The tramadol that I was taking before I had the surgery, I haven't taken it either. I haven't taken it because the back pain is very, very minimal. And I just feel freaking great. You know, and there's so many people out there that deal with back pain, that deal with all these issues. And, you know, there's ways to help to do that. But, man, it's so hard to make the decision to actually want to go out there and have surgery done because, damn, it is painful. And it's a 50-50 chance. You know, sometimes it's going to work. And sometimes it just may not work as well as you think that it's going to work. So I'm just hopeful. I'm grateful. And here's looking to the next couple of months of recovery and that I feel better. And now that I feel so much better that I can get on here and actually record my podcast and share with you guys the progress as I am moving along in healing and recovery. Are you looking for a photographer who can capture the most important moments in your life? Look no further than Miguel Signs Photography. Miguel Signs is an award-winning photographer with a passion for capturing the beauty and emotions of weddings, family portraits, and special events. With years of experience and a creative eye, Miguel Signs will create stunning images that you'll treasure for years to come. Whether you're looking for a traditional wedding album, a unique family portrait, or a professional headshot for your business, Miguel Signs Photography has the expertise to bring your vision to life. From the initial consultation to the final product, Miguel Signs will work with you every step of the way to ensure that your images reflect your unique style and personality. Don't settle for mediocre photographs that simply document an event. Trust Miguel Signs Photography to create timeless images that capture the essence of your special moments. Book your session today and experience the magic of Miguel Signs Photography. Visit Miguel Signs Photography online at miguelsignsphotography.com to see examples of his work and schedule your appointment today. What we're going to do right here is go back. Way back, back 
back into time. It's time for the division to finally conduct their second jersey drill to make sure that they fully understand exactly where every unit is going to be once they cross that border and actually head down into Iraq. So let's go ahead and get into it and find out exactly what went on when they went through this actual jersey drill to prepare themselves. The second jersey drill was held just east of LSA Matilda on 27 February. This drill was to capstone event for planning efforts up to this point. The terrain model was to be extended to the ground and prepared such as it would be greater amphitheater effect. This time, no mere shovels and picks would do. The division's engineers prepared the ground with D7 bulldozers by pushing around a great deal of sand and expertly constructed a multi-tiered amphitheater in the desert, complete with an angled and sand table surface. 100 meters on one side with plenty of seating around the perimeter. There was a virtue row for key leaders, allowing them to look down on the battlefield from atop a high hill. The G6 set up the sound system in the desert, and the G2 and the G3 Marines prepared an event grander version of the mother of all terrain models for the upcoming drill. Personnel from across the division, higher adjutant and supporting units attended this capstone event. Lieutenant General Conway, Major General United Kingdom Brims, Major General Amos, Major General Stalder, Rear Admiral Kubik, Brigadier General Natowski, and Brigadier General Usher were in attendance. The large audience included uniforms from almost every branch of the service, including the United Kingdom coalition partners. The purpose of the drill was to ensure that commanders, supporting organizations, and divisions battle staff had a clear understanding of the division's intent. The task organization battlefield geometry and visualization of the sequence of events from the operating gamut were reviewed. The review allowed all units to visualize their role in the coming fight. Even with a planned sequence of events, the division's plan remained agile enough to incorporate the expected last-minute changes and timings that are always part of such a high-stakes endeavor. Lieutenant Colonel Bob Sinclair, the division's current operations officer, coordinated the drill from start to finish in his usual enthusiastic and forceful manner. He and Lieutenant Colonel Grohn from the G2 conducted a tag team briefing covering the geographical laydown, expected enemy actions, and friendly scheme of maneuver timings for the entire opening gambit. Although the specific opening day timing was still unresolved, the division used a normal four-day separation between A-Day and G-Day for the drill scenario. Actions on the terrain model began in the division's dispersal area in northern Kuwait and continued through the establishment of the bridgehead across the Euphrates River. Even though originally planned as a division rehearsal, the drill was invaluable as it coordinated key players from throughout the MEF and the actions of the opening gambit. The exercise complete, Lieutenant General Conway took the opportunity to address the assembled staffs. He remarked that the rehearsal was well done and that he was glad all elements of the MEF had participated. Then, with an unexpected gravity in his voice, he announced that five days ago, the president had notified USENTCOM that they were to be ready to attack into Iraq on order. 
The assembled crowd of the professionals let words sink in. This would be the last rehearsal. This marked the end of preparation and the beginning of execution. The MEF was going to war, and the Marines gathered here would be the ones to lead it. If we let this just sink in just a little bit, all the commanders had just found out that this was it. This was the last rehearsal that the President of the United States had said for them to be prepared to execute the order on command. Now, by me just reading that, oh my goodness, I got chills. I got chills because I remember when the CO came back from this briefing, from this rehearsal that they conducted, and he told us. He brought us all into formation, and he always kept us aware of what was actually going on because it's very, very important that every Marine knows exactly what's going on. They understand the plan. That's going to make it easier for us to actually execute the mission because if we know what's going on, we know what's going to happen. We know what we're prepared to do once we get the order to go and execute it. And I got to tell you guys, that formation was a very, very quiet formation because it just sank into all of us. It sank into all of us that all the training, all the preparation that we had been doing for so many years was now finally going to come into play. We were going to head into Iraq to liberate those people. And now when we went to the range and, you know, shot the targets and practiced and rehearsed, it was all going to be put to the test because now these targets, they're going to shoot back. They're going to shoot back and you have to do what you have to do in order to ensure that you make it back to your family, to be home with them, to be safe. And all that just kind of sank in there for a second and prepared ourselves mentally to do the things that we knew that we had to do. Even though some, some of us, you know, we didn't want to go there and, and do the things that we did, but we understood our mission. We understood our mission that we had to do what had to be done to ensure the safety of our nation, the safety of our loved ones who were back home, to ensure that we completed our mission to the best of our ability went through, liberated the people there, and the sooner we were done, the sooner we would come home. Hero, Hero Highlight. In our Medal of Honor citation reading this week, we take a look at the history and the heroism of Major Douglas Thomas Jacobson, United States Marine Corps, and his Medal of Honor citation. Major Douglas Thomas Jacobson, who was presented the country's highest honor the Medal of Honor, on 5 October 1945, by President Harry S. Truman, for heroism on Iwo Jima, died 20 August 2000 in Port Charlotte, Florida. Born in Rochester, New York, on 25 November of 1925, Captain Jacobson attended elementary and high school in Port Washington, New York. He worked for his father as a draftsman and was a lifeguard and swimming instructor before enlisted in the Marine Corps Reserve on 28 January of 1943 at the age of 17. Following recruit training at Paris Island, South Carolina, he was transferred to the 23rd Marine Regiment at Camp Lejeune, New River, North Carolina, and was promoted in July of 1943 
to Private First Class. As a member of the 3rd Battalion, 23rd Marines, 4th Marine Division, he was sent overseas in December of 1943 and participated in the campaigns for Tanan, Mariana Islands, Marshall Islands, and Iwo Jima. Promoted to corporal in April of 1945, he returned to the United States that September, reporting to Headquarters Battalion, Headquarters Marine Corps, Washington, D.C., and was substantially transferred to the Naval Shipyard, New York, New York, until discharged as a corporal in December of 1945. He then re-enlisted in the United States Marine Corps on 22 April of 1946 and was retained at District Headquarters Recruiting Station, Washington, D.C. As a recruiting sergeant, reappointed a line of corporal in September of 1946, he was ordered to a replacement battalion at Oceanside, California, embarking in November aboard the USS General William Mitchell as a replacement for the 1st Marine Division Fleet Marine Force. He joined the 1st Engineer Battalion in December of 1946 and served with the 1st Marine Division in Paipang and Tsingtao, China. He was promoted to sergeant in May of 1947. Returning from overseas in December of 1948, he reported to the Marine Air Detachment U.S. Naval Air Station, Columbus, Ohio, and was subsequently returned to the Naval Base New York, New York for discharge as a sergeant on 21 April of 1949. He later served eight months in Florida National Guard before being discharged to re-enlist in the Marine Corps Reserve as a technical sergeant in September of 1953 as a member of the 2nd 155mm Gun Battalion at Miami, Florida. Shortly thereafter, he was ordered to active duty to attend the 9th Officer Candidate Course at Quantico, Virginia. Discharged from the reserves in December of 1953, he was immediately reappointed a technical sergeant in the regular Marine Corps and subsequently commissioned a second lieutenant in March of 1954 with date of rank from 5 June, 1953. Following graduation from the first basic course at Quantico in June 1954, he served briefly as a detachment officer until transferred to the 3rd Marine Division at Camp Pendleton as a member of the 3rd Marine Division, Lieutenant Jacobson left the United States in December of 1954, arriving in Japan the next month. During this tour of duty, he served as executive officer and later commanding officer of Company A, 1st Battalion, 9th Marines, 3rd Marine Division, and was promoted to 1st Lieutenant with date of rank of 5 December 1954. Returning from overseas in June of 1955, Lieutenant Jacobson reported to the Marine Barracks, U.S. Naval Base, Brooklyn, New York, and served as a guard officer until July of 1956, when he was transferred to the 2nd Battalion's 2nd Marine's 2nd Marine Division, Camp Lejeune, North Carolina. At Camp Lejeune, he served as a company officer in Company D, and later as commanding officer of Headquarters and Service Company. In August of 1957, he became a range officer at the Rifle Range Battalion Marine Corps Base, Camp Lejeune, and was promoted to captain in November. In January of 1958, he was reassigned as the General Supply Service Company 2nd Service Regiment, 2nd Marine Division, Camp Lejeune, to attend 
Supply Officer's Course to TAC 58. Upon completion of the school in April of 1958, he was assigned duties as a supply officer with subunit number one, headquarters company, headquarters battalion, Marine Corps Base, Camp Lejeune. In October of 1958, he became officer in charge of the self-service center, base material battalion, second force service regiment at Camp Lejeune and served in various other supply duty capacities with the battalion until July of 1960, when he was ordered to duty with the 3rd Marine Division on Okinawa. Captain Jacobson served as regimental supply officer of the 3rd Marine Regiment with the division until December of 1960, when he returned to the base material battalion at Camp Lejeune. There, he served as assistant warehouse officer and officer in charge, substance branch and storage division until April of 1962, when he was assigned as commanding officer, headquarters and support company, 2nd Pioneer Battalion, 2nd Marine Division, Camp Lejeune. He was promoted to major on 1 July 1964 and retired in 1967. In addition to the Medal of Honor, Major Jacobson's medals and decorations include the Letter of Commendation, Presidential Union Citation with two Bronze Stars, the Good Conduct Medal, the Asiatic Pacific Campaign Medal with four Bronze Stars, the American Campaign Medal, the World War II Victory Medal, the China Service Medal, and the National Defense Service Medal. In addition, while a corporal during World War II, he was commended in division orders of the 4th Marine Division for excellent performance of duties as a Browning Automatic Rifleman while serving with a rifle company during action against enemy forces in Japan on Saipan, Mariana Islands from 15 June to 28 June of 1944. The Quarter Deck. If you're just joining us, you've been listening to The Quarter Deck with Miguel the Gunny Signs, and this week on The Quarter Deck, we talked about the division conducting their second and final jersey rehearsal where the commanders have actually just found out from the commanding general that this is it. They are awaiting the orders from the President of the United States and they are on call. The President had contacted the commander and told him, hey, be prepared. The division needs to be ready because when I call you, you need to get head out and head into Iraq. In our hero highlights, we took a look at the story and the life of Major Douglas Thomas Jacobson of the United States Marine Corps and his long and industrious career that he spent in the Marine Corps, the National Guard, and then back into the Marine Corps. This major could not make up his mind, but glad that he ended up retiring a United States Marine. If this is your first time joining us here on the Quarterdeck, welcome to our show, our weekly podcast that we conduct every single week where we conduct the story of the 1st Marine Division as they prepare to head into Iraq back in 2000. And three, and we look at the story and the highlights of so many different heroes that are out there starting back from World War I up until now. Right now, we're focusing on Marines. So thank you guys for joining us this week. And those of you that have been loyal listeners, I thank you. From the bottom of my heart, I thank you very, very much. Continue to share the link to our podcast so we can ensure that we continue to grow, have a bigger audience. And this way, our podcast will be broadcast even further, and a lot more people will be able to listen to us. As always, remember that our podcast is broadcast on every podcasting application that is out there. All you simply have to do is just Google the Quarterdeck with Gunny Signs, 
and it will show you all the different players that you are able to listen to our podcast every single week. Don't forget to subscribe so this way you're notified as soon as a new episode is uploaded and you're ready to continue on with the story and follow me along as we look back at history, the traditions, and everything that the Marine Corps stands for all of us Marines, past, present, and future, so that we have an understanding and know what the Marines before us actually did and conducted in all those missions that they did before us. As a reminder as well, remember that you can find us on Facebook and you're able to go ahead and leave us comments, questions on there, and I take a look at them every single day. So if you have a question, if you have a comment, go to our Facebook page, The Quarterdeck with Gunny Signs, post it right there on the page, and I will make sure that I get the opportunity to answer your question, find the answer, and let you know on next week's episode what I found out regarding anything that's been going on with questions that you may have, whether it's the VA, whether it's anything like that. And always remember, today is the last month of August. Tomorrow starts September, Suicide Awareness Month of service members, veterans, and everything else throughout the United States, throughout the world. So always reach out to them, and we'll continue to progress and talk a little bit more about what's available out there for these individuals in the upcoming podcast. But until then, this is Miguel, the Gunny Signs, sounding Liberty Call. Get off the bus! I do solemnly swear. I do solemnly swear. That I will support you, Phil. The Constitution of the United States. United States. Against all enemies, foreign and domestic.